In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful, on this 18th Sunday after Pentecost, the sacred liturgy makes us see that the last coming of Christ is no longer far off. The approach of that final event, which will unite the Church perfectly with her divine spouse, renews and strengthens the hope of the Church, our hope. But the last judgment, which is also to pronounce the eternal perdition, the eternal loss of many of her children, mixes in fear with her desire. And these two sentiments will henceforth be continually brought into a greater and greater relief in the sacred liturgy. Holy Mother Church lives ever in the state of expectation, the expectation and hope of Christ's return, his second coming, separated as she is, at least to the vision of his divine beauty, the church would have been, so to speak, sighing all day long in this valley of tears, if not for the love, the charity which possesses her, had driven her to spend herself unselfishly and unreservedly for he, for he who is the absolute master of her whole heart, Christ the Lord. The church, therefore, devotes herself to labor and to suffering, to prayers and to tears. But her devotedness, unlimited as it had been, has not made her hopes less ardent. For a love without desires is not the virtue of the church. She condemns it in her children as being an insult to the divine spouse. So just and at the same time so intense were, and from, the, and from the very first, these aspirations of Holy Mother Church, that the eternal wisdom wished to spare the, his bride, the Church, by concealing from her the length of time of her exile here on earth. The day and the hour of his return is the one sole point upon which, when questioned by the apostles, our Lord refused to enlighten them. That secret constituted one of God's designs, one of the designs of God's government of the world. And besides that, it was also a proof of the compassion and of the affection of the man-God, for the trial would have been too cruel if he had revealed this. It was better to leave the church under the impression, which after all was a true impression, that the end was near in God's sight. For with God, a thousand years are as one day, according to the scriptures. It is this which explains how it was that the apostles, who were the interpreters of the church's aspirations, are continually going back to the subject of the near approach of the Lord's return, his second coming. St. Paul had just been, has just been telling us and twice over, in the, same, in the same breath, that the Christian is he who waits for the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who desires this manifestation, this coming. In his epistle to the Hebrews, St. Paul applies to the second coming the inflamed desires of the ancient prophets 
for the first. And he says, yet a, yet a little and a very little while. He that is to come will come and will not delay. The reason is that under the new covenant, as under the old, The man-god is called on account of his final manifestation, which is always being looked for. He is called he that is coming, he that is to come. The cry which is so close to the world's history, which is to close the world's history, is to be the announcement of his arrival. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. St. Peter, too, for his part, says... Having the the loins of your mind girt up, think of the glory of that day, whereupon the Lord Jesus is to be revealed. Hope for it with a perfect hope. The prince of the apostles foresaw the contemptuous manner, the way in which the future false teachers would scoff at this long-expected but always put-off coming. Where is his promise? Where is his coming? They would say. For since the fathers slept, all things continue from the beginning of creation. Yes, St. Peter foresaw this, and he forestalled their sarcasm by answering it in the words which his brother, St. Paul, had already used. The Lord does not delay his promise, but he bears patiently for our sake, not willing that any should perish, but that all should return to penance. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, unexpectedly, surprisingly, out of the blue, in which, in which the heavens shall pass away with great violence, and the elements shall be dissolved with great heat, and the earth and the works that are in it shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things are to be dissolved, The question for us is, what manner of people should we be? Should not our conversations be holy and our behavior full of all the virtues, waiting for and hastening to the coming of the day of the Lord? We wait for the new heavens and a new earth according to his promise, a place where the justice of God reigns. If in those last days the danger is to be so great that the very powers of heaven shall be moved, our Lord, as we are told in in our epistle, has providentially confirmed in us his testimony and our faith by continually manifesting his power. In In the last few centuries, Miracles have been forcing themselves on the world's unwilling notice. In the holy name of our Lord, in the name of one or the other of his saints, but especially in the name of the the Immaculate Mother of God, Mary, who is preparing the final triumph of the church, the blind have been made to see, the lame have been made to walk, the deaf to hear, all sorts of miseries of body and soul, have been cured, and so incontestable and so public is this manifestation of supernatural power that business managers of all kinds, even if they were infidels and laughed at the facts, were nevertheless most serious in turning these occasions to their profit 
Anyone who has ever made a pilgrimage to Lourdes in France, a town bustling with commercial, commercial activity, can attest to this. Especially in the last few centuries, railway companies were only too glad to add extra trains to accommodate the thousands of faithful and carry them as quickly as they could to, her, to the favored sanctuaries where the Holy Mother of God has appeared, and in particular, to Fatima. If the infidel refuses to hear the divine testimony, it is because corruption or pride has, has more power over him than the light of reason, just as it was with the enemies of Christ. During his life upon earth, he is like the, the viper mentioned in the psalm, which makes itself deaf, stops up its ears, that it may never hear the voice of the divine enchanter who speaks so that he may save. His life is one of insanity, and he has done his best to draw down vengeance on himself. So let us not be like him, but with the apostle, let us thank God for the rich profusion, his giving forth of his grace, which he has so mercifully poured out upon us and continues to. Never were his gifts more necessary than in these miserable times, for the efforts of hell against the church have become so very violent that in order to withstand them, there is need of a power from on high, equal in some sense to those graces granted to the early church, these extraordinary gifts. So let us, by the fervor of our fasting and our prayer, obtain from the divine majesty that the imposition of hands, particularly in the sacrament of priestly ordination, may now more than ever, in those that are called to the priesthood, obtain its full result. That it may make these men rich in all things, especially in all utter utterance and in all knowledge. We live in an age of compromising and of flinching. May we learn, both priests and faithful, what was so deeply appreciated by the early church. It is indeed the return of our Lord that we look forward to, and not the indefinite prolonging of life on this earth. Let us strive, therefore, to conform our conduct more and more with the hope of our Lord's return and our invitation to a blessed eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.